So picture this. A somewhat gaunt man in an old, dirty singlet with soot marks covering his arms and hair, and hair that clearly has not been washed for some time. He looks like maybe any homeless person that you might pass on the streets here in D.C. Maybe you see him, maybe you don't. Maybe you form an opinion about him, or maybe you just feel sad because you can't do more than offer a smile. And then, he does something unexpected. He sits down in front of a piano that had been placed on the street to encourage creative public spaces and plays the 1977 hit Come Sail Away by the band Styx. Now, if you're not familiar with that particular song, it's not the easiest piece to play, and he sits down and plays it almost perfectly. This homeless person is named Donald, though around town he's known as Boone, and he wasn't always homeless. He actually began his musical training as a child playing clarinet, and eventually went on to play in the Marine Corps Band. After serving for some time, he dreamed of becoming a music teacher. And so he began attending college and had a bright future ahead of him. That is, until he ran out of money three semesters short of graduating. Then his wife passed away. And as he puts it, he just lost it. Next came substance abuse, followed by the removal of his three-year-old son from his custody, and his life just spiraled down from there until he found himself with nothing. And since then, he had just been trying to get by. Now, it would be easy to see him and judge him, to figure that if we offer him a helping hand, that he probably can't really make use of it. It would be easy to say that he probably has mental health issues. After all, he has substance abuse uh, in his past and being homeless, it's very likely that he won't ever overcome such crippling odds. It's, e it's maybe even easiest to blame him and say, well, he got himself into this situation. And when he's ready, he'll let us know. And then maybe we can help. It's easy to think these things. It's easy to think about these as we pass any of the number of homeless folks who all have a story, who all ended up there on the streets somehow. Whether it was out of unfortunate circumstances or they just found themselves not able to maintain life uh, as and all of the things that goes with it. They ended up on the street somehow, and they came from somewhere. They are someone's child. It's easy, though, to look at that person and put them in a box. Clearly, they're still using substances, or clearly they'll use this dollar to buy alcohol. Clearly, they're just faking and just doing this because panhandling's easier than getting a job. Right? These are things we can say. Maybe we don't say or you don't say, but surely there are folks who would say these things when they see the homeless. Surely it's easy to assume 
a lot about a person and to place them inside a box. Because, you know, we like to do that to people. We like people to be in boxes. It helps us to understand people when you can categorize them, right? When you can figure out, well, you fit into this box, such as all of you as American University college students. Okay, well, that's a box. I understand. I can, if I put you in there, I know something about you. And so it helps me understand you. But what happens when we start putting people in boxes that they're not comfortable with? What happens when we start putting people in boxes where we just assume we know them because of something we've seen about them, something they've done, some way they're dressed, some way they're acting, something they said. We just assume they're in this box and this is who they are. It's easy to do that and look past who people really are. It's easy to say what you were is what you are and that is what you will be forever. To say your box is where you will stay. Because that makes sense, right? If I know you and I've identified you and I've put you in your box and you're there, that makes sense. Right? I don't feel like anybody's excited about this putting people in boxes thing here. Which is a good thing. Because though we say a lot of time that people don't change and a leopard can't change its spots, and though it's easy to believe that people in the boxes, uh, it's easy to believe that people in boxes that have been drawn around them cannot change and they can never do better, they will always be what we see them as. Just that, inside their boxes. As long as we have their boxes, that's where people stay. The only problem with that is, that is not the gospel. That is not what we believe as people of faith. And in the season of Lent, we are in the season of Lent here in the church. This season of when we put purple up and it's the 40 days minus Sundays between Ash Wednesday and Easter. It's 40 days of preparation and self-examination. It's a time of doing inward work, of looking into ourselves as individuals and looking into ourselves as the church and asking, where have I failed to be Christ in the world? It's a season of repentance, a season of turning away from those things where we fall short and recommitting to doing different and trying to do better. That's why I've called this year's Lent series 40 Days to Reset, because we are in 40 days of doing this inward work of ourself and the church and asking, how can I reset? How can I do better? How can I see change in my own life? How can I be more Christ-like for the world? And it's 40 Days to Reset because Easter is the promise of the risen Christ who gives us new life, who gives us new hope, he, who gives us the chance to start over, to set aside the past that has brought us here, and to begin again with a clean slate. Now that is the gospel, right? The idea that we get to start over, that our past doesn't define us, that is the gospel. And yet, we struggle with this idea. This whole passage from John that we just heard is an example of this. 
There's a man who was born blind and now can see. Jesus made a mud paste and placed it on the man's eyes, and after he washed away the mud, his eyes opened, and for the first time he could see. A man who was blind can now see. This is a miracle. A miracle occurred. A person's life has been, trans, has been transformed. And what is the response of those around him? Well, first, they say, Jesus is a sinner because he was healing this man on the Sabbath. Because clearly the most important thing about this story is that it happened on the Sabbath and you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath and healing would be a form of work and therefore wrong. That doesn't quite make sense. And then they go to this man's parents because, you know, why would they want to go to the individual themselves and say, wait a minute, you've always told us he was born blind. And now he can see. What's up? What's the scam here? Is this a scam? Is this for real? Have you all been scamming us? Well, they kind of deflect and say, why don't you go talk to him? He's of age. He can answer for himself. And so then they go back to this man who's again, was blind, and now he sees, seeing for the first time in his life, and what happens? People say to him, what in the heck happened to you? How did this happen? Because this is clearly wrong. And so he finally looks at them and says, look, I don't know if this man is a sinner or not, and I don't know how to explain this to you. Though it seems to me that God does not answer sinners, but does listen to those who worship and obey God. And setting that aside, from that, all I can tell you is that I was blind. And now I see. He was blind. And now he can see. I can almost hear in, in, in his head him going, Hello? Do you not know how huge this is? I was blind yesterday, and today my eyes are working. How often have you seen this happen? It's the first time it's happened to me. Why are you so worried about all these other things? Shouldn't we all be super excited that this guy could make someone who was blind able to see? This guy who seems just a little bit different? Shouldn't we all be just wanting to know more about him and wanting to hear more from him? Shouldn't we all want to talk to him? That's what I feel like he's going through his head at that time. And how does the crowd respond? They say, well, you were born entirely in sin, so you have no right to teach us. Uh, so we're going to chase you out of town. He was in a box. His blindness in that time was seen as a curse and clearly a sign of his sin or his family's sin. And therefore, he was a sinner and he would always be a sinner and he would never change from being a sinner. He was going to be a sinner for the rest of his life. And this just messed up the whole box because suddenly he can see a miracle has happened. Something good has happened. If there was a curse, it must be broken. And that kind of throws a wrench in the whole box that he's been placed in. The gospel actually tells us a different story, though. The gospel message tells us a different story, that is. And 
it continues on past what I had read this, this evening, saying, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man who was blind and now sees says, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment so that those who did not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Jesus looked at this man who obviously everyone else saw as a sinner who belonged in this box, and he saw something else. He didn't see a blind man. He saw the child of God that this man was originally created to be. And he saw in the crowd the real spirit of those who were blinded ironically, in their hearts, to the work of God in their midst. They were missing out because they were convinced they knew who this man was, and it blinded them to God in their presence. You don't have to answer this, but how many of you have ever experienced that? been blinded to something maybe because you knew you were right. Well, in the United Methodist Church, we've kind of got that going on all over the place. We've been in the midst of a, we'll call it a cold civil war for quite a while now, and for much of the last decade, we've been working on dividing ourselves and putting ourselves in corners and standing firmly on the fact that we truly understand the gospel, and they are leading folks straight to hell. And that's both sides who are basically saying that about the other, uh, which is, again, you know, both sides can't be right. The problem right now with the church is I think sometimes, even though we may try and we may mean to and we may want to say we're, we are welcoming of everyone and we want to say we're loving of everyone just as Jesus loved us, we fail sometimes to see one another as siblings in Christ because we've placed each other in a box and said, I know what your motives are. I know why you're doing what you're doing you people on the other side, or should I say the wrong side. And so we throw around words like bigots and haters and anytime someone disagrees with us, whoever us might be. Maybe you're surprised to hear that the church might call each other bigots. Maybe he would be surprised to know the church sometimes throws that word, you hate me, even though I love you. Because I know the motives of your heart, because clearly you belong in this box, and I know what you stand for. I want to be clear, I stand very firmly on my convictions of my biblical understandings and my theology. I'm not saying that we, uh, are weakening, we should weaken our position and uh, 
say the other side is right, whichever that other side is. But what I am saying is that we should strive to not put the other side in a box that is the other side. When we look around, when we have disagreements with one another, we should look around and see not the others. We should see children of God. And that's not just in the church. That's outside the church. That's everywhere we go in life. Everyone we meet. Everyone we encounter. When we have a disagreement with somebody, we should not first decide what their motives are and their intentions are and how they are wrong because they have disagreed with us. But we should look at them and say, you are a beloved child of God. We are all siblings in Christ. It makes it a lot harder to hate somebody when they're in a box that is beloved child of God. When I'm beloved and you're beloved and we're all beloved, it's a lot more difficult for that hatred to shine through. And the truth is, the boxes that we like to place people in, well, most of the time they're wrong. Most of the time they really don't fit around the people or any people. Instead, we have to move in and act like we know that the person in standing in front of us is loved by God. If every interaction you had was begun with the starting point that this person across from me who I have been arguing with in class all semester, who I am 100% no conditions certain is wrong, if you then began the conversation by looking at them and saying, this is God's beloved child, how does that change that conversation? What happens when we stop seeing each other as what we want them to be and see each other by the one definition that never changes? Because the problem is when we don't start with that place, when we start by putting people in boxes, we're cutting ourselves off just like the crowd did. You never know when and where the Spirit will move and where God will change things. God is, we believe in the God of transformation who moves in and around us, the God who is alive and active in our world today. And if we believe in that, but we shut ourselves off and say certain people don't get to be, we're shutting ourselves off just like the crowd did for this man who was blind and now can see. So instead, we must look at the gospel that teaches that all are sinners, but all are freely offered forgiveness, that all have fallen short, that I have fallen short, but Christ is reaching down and offering everyone a hand back up. And that means no matter what boxes others might have placed you in, there's only one box that God is placing you in. Beloved child, 
You are a beloved child of God whom Christ came to bring new life and new hope. And the Holy Spirit walks with you in the good and the bad and in the ins and the outs of life. The only definition that is permanent is child of God. And alongside that, remember that no one's future is written yet. The book is never closed on anyone. And whether it is choices that you have made that have brought you here, or choices of others, or merely circumstances of life that have brought you here, and when I say here, I mean in the existential sense, brought you here to this place in life, however you have come to be here, no one is broken beyond repair. No one is beyond the reach of God. No one is too far gone to find new life. And this doesn't mean the pains of the past will go away immediately or that there will, be, there will not be future difficulties. But it does mean that God does not look down and see only a down-on-his-luck homeless man or a broken blind man or you or me in all of the ways we come needing healing and wholeness. Instead, God only sees one thing when looking down toward us. The one definition that goes on always and forever. Beloved child of God. Amen.